This is an ABC podcast. This might seem like a strange question, but how are you able to understand me right now? It's because of language, and more importantly, because I'm using language to communicate with you. All animals communicate, but language is uniquely human. I'm Paul Barclay, and this is a very big ideas show. The first in a series of four, in fact, from the 2019 Glasgow Gifford Lecture Series, presented here by Mark Pagel, Professor of Evolutionary Biology at Reading University in the UK. This first lecture explores the evolution of language. Professor Pagel asks why only humans have language, how language helped us spread across the world, and why there are so many languages. And of course, what does the future hold for language? But to begin with, a biblical story and a very famous tower. The Tower of Babel story is a story about language, isn't it? And the story goes from the Bible that humans had acquired language, a single language, and they realized that the language was so powerful it would help them work together and cooperate to build a tower that would take them all the way to heaven. Now God, annoyed at this attempt to usurp his power, destroyed the tower and famously scattered the people and here's the irony, to ensure that they could never work together again, he gave them separate languages. So the Tower of Babel story is a story about linguistic diversity. And the irony of it is, is that human languages exist to prevent us from communicating with each other. And we're going to actually see in the third lecture that this is far closer to the truth than you might think, and perhaps not for the reasons that you think. And what's more interesting is that that linguistic diversity that we think arose from something like the Tower of Babel has somehow labeled us, given us an identity that we have used to work our way around the world. All right, well, I'm hoping that all of us speak the same language tonight so that we can communicate. And we're going to study not linguistic diversity tonight, but the, the evolution of language, when it arose, what perhaps was responsible for it arising, how we have actually shaped language, and then how language has helped us move around the world, and it actually sculpted us genetically. All right, let's start out with a little bit of audience participation. Now, this really has nothing to do with the rest of the talk. It's just kind of a fun thing to do. Now, if you're squeamish about such things, don't worry. I'm not like a stand-up comedian. I'm not going to pull you down here and humiliate you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a list of words. And after every word I read, I want you to clap if it's a real English word. Okay? So, okay, it's, it's not an intelligence test. Well, well, it is slightly, <laughs> but I don't want you to worry. So I'm going to read a word, and then what you do is if it's a real English word, you clap. Okay, it's pretty simple. So the first word I'm going to read to you is, we're going to start out really easy, table. Now that's good. Glaswegians are good at clapping. You know, I've done this before, and I, and I, and I get a sort of feeble little, and we have to do it several times, but just to make sure you're good at it, let's try another simple word like house. That's even better. Brilliant. Okay, let's go on to another word. Pavement. Fractious. 
dilatory, obloquy, obstreperous. <laughs> Says something about Glasgow, doesn't it? Adumbrate, fewer, feculent. Sounds like a dirty word, doesn't it? Well, it is actually. Ochlocracy. There's a philosopher, there's a political philosopher in the crowd. Eructate. And finally, demonate. Ooh, are you sure you wanted to clap? I made that word up. You should have never heard that word in all of your existence. But let's see, what was I doing with you? And I'm sorry, it's three of you who sort of ruined the exhibition, but let's go on anyway. So if we have a look at these uh, words like, like uh, food and table have a very high frequency. You probably hear them just about once every day from their, from their frequency in spoken English. A word like pavement or disguise, you might hear about once every two weeks or so. And you might be asking yourself, when was the last time you used the word pavement? And it was 15 minutes ago, just keep quiet. <laughs> Um, a word like fractious or bellicose, those are words you might hear once every three to six months. Words like dilatory, maybe once every nine months or so. So we're getting less and less frequent in, in everyday human speech. Obloquy is a word that you might hear once or twice per year. Obstreperous is another word you might hear once or twice per year, except it seems in Glasgow. <laughs> Uh, we were starting to lose people here with words like adumbrate or traduce. These are words you might hear once every three to five years or so. They're, you know, they're words that aren't used very often at all. Words like feculent, uh, thankfully, because it's not a very pretty word, is it? Once every 15 years or so. Ochlocracy is something that actually applies to Great Britain at the moment. It's a, it's a political uh, set up. It's the rule of the rabble. That's an ochlocracy. <laughs> and we have a rule of the rabble at the moment. And very, very few, I think one gentleman over here had heard that word. And eructate, you might hear once every 85 years or so. And then finally, demonate is a word that I made up and you should have never heard. And I use this illustration, this audience participation, to illustrate what a finely tuned capacity for language you have. You have this capacity residing in your brain that can recognize words that you may never have actually used in your own speech and you may have only heard once in a blue moon or far less than that. But more importantly, you can discriminate between a word that might occur only once in every sort of 100 million or so or 500 million utterances from a word you've never heard. So this linguistic capacity is really extraordinary. It's a little bit like these environmental monitoring devices that can pick up sort of parts per million of toxins in the environment. That's how good your linguistic capacity is. Okay, well, like I say, it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with tonight's lecture other than to say that Darwin thought the following, that language should justly be considered as one of the chief distinctions between man, sorry about the language, and the lower animals. Well, let's have a look because I've just told you you have a pretty important and highly tuned device. So to understand language, to understand whether that's true, that we are the only species with language, we need to know what language is, don't we? Now this is something that linguists can argue over um, until the cows come home, and I don't want to do that tonight, but what I do want to say is that the chief 
feature of human language that really sets it apart is it's what we call compositional. Human language, we tend to speak in things we call sentences, and those sentences tend to have things we call subjects and verbs and objects, like I kicked the ball, or she ate a peach, and so on. And what that compositionality means is that we can substitute and combine and recombine subject words, verb words, and object words in an infinite number of ways to create sentences that we've never even heard before ourselves, but which we can understand because of our linguistic capacity. So this is really quite extraordinary because most of the things you know you've had to learn perhaps by repetition or somebody teaching you something. But with language, we have this, this, this infinite capacity to generate new sentences that people have never heard before, and yet they understand immediately because of this compositionality. So this ability to combine and recombine words into their subject, verb, and object roles gives language this capacity. With 25 words of each kind, you can already generate 15,000 sentences. And with 100 of each kind, you can generate a million. And it's been a while, it's been about 20 years since I had a three-year-old, but I'm told that three-year-olds have 200 words. And so even at, at the age of three, we can already generate huge numbers of sentences. And this is just unlike any other thing on earth. All right, well, let's, let's see for the boffins in the crowd, let's get a little bit technical. Compositionality makes language a digital form of communication. Words are either on or off. They're either there or they're not. And they're chunks, and they tend to self-correct our words. Other animals' communication is what we would call analog by comparison to a digital form of communication. So most animal communication is how loud, how bright, how long a signal lasts, how smelly it is, how colorful it is. These are analog systems. But language is a digital system. And one of the features of digital systems, and you all appreciate this if only in a, 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 a sort of um, common parlance sense, is that digital systems are capable of great fidelity and great variety. So we can transmit digital signals with extreme accuracy, and we, they're capable of generating a great variety of, of um, sentences. Okay, what about the other animals? Let's have a look. Well, all animals communicate, and so do even most plants. And here's a whole book on communication in plants. But do they have language? Well, here are parrots that famously speak, don't they? They use words. But of course, the difference between their speech and ours is they're simply mimicking us. They're imitating us. They're not generating new sentences. And those sentences can be amusing to us, and they can even take a darker side, which I'm going to show you, but they're not what we would call language. They don't, on their own, spontaneously generate and combine and recombine words into new sentences, and they wouldn't understand one if you told it to them. And the dark side of this is the following. Here is a parrot that um, helped convict a woman of murdering her husband by constantly saying, don't shoot don't shoot, <laughs> in the husband's voice after witnessing the crime. So keep the parrots out of your house. Don't talk to them. Don't talk in front of them. Forget all this GDPR stuff. Parrots are much more dangerous. 
Um, so parrots don't speak, animal, uh, plants don't speak, Dr. Doolittle accepted. Um, what about dolphins? So about every three or four years, we see some breathless report on the BBC or in the newspapers about how dolphins can speak. There was one in 2013, dolphins call each other by their name. Everybody says, oh, dolphins are speaking to each other. Scientists discover that dolphins can speak almost like humans. Um, that almost really carries a lot of weight there. <laughs> um, and killer whales say hello. These animals, as much as we hear, they don't have language. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. I talked about a digital system, and we know that um, dolphins and killer whales echolocate with dot, 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 dot sound, and you could think that's a digital form of communication, but in fact, that's just being used to image their environment or to signal their, their, their presence in an area. It isn't being used to generate brand new sentences that they combine and recombine. All right, well, if dolphins can't speak, let's go up a notch. How about chimpanzee signing? So many of you will know that there are long-term field projects with chimpanzees um, in which they are forced to sit down with a human day after day after day and they have to do things like touch their nose when the human touches her nose and they're given a banana for doing that. So I call this harassment. Um, they, 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 they call it a scientific research project and the idea is to try to get chimps to use sign language which really really reluctantly they do after years and years and years and years of harassing them like this they'll sort of do this with their hands with sign language and it's just more or less to make these people go away or to get a banana and i am being irreverent about this and i'm being light-hearted about it but what we don't see with the chimpanzees is them generating new sentences in which they endlessly and effortlessly combine and recombine words in, into new sentences. And this um, particular chimpanzee is a famous one here, is pretty good at signing, in fact, one of the best, and he's called Nim Chimpsky. Um, sorry, I didn't make that up. And he has the record for the longest sentence that a chimp has ever produced with sign language. And what I want you to see is there's, there's a quality to this sentence, which is that it has nothing to do with communication, but all about desire, and in particular, desire for food, because that's what animals want, right? Okay, so here's his sentence, and let's, I'm, I'm gonna read it, and then we're gonna all read it together to get a sense of what, in fact, let's just all read it together. I'll go like this, to get a sense of what it's like to be a chimp. Are you ready? So here we go, his sentence goes, give, Orange, me, give, eat, orange, me, eat, orange, give, me, eat, orange, give, me, you. Come on, if one of your friends said that to you, you would just push them away. So what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to point out here is that we can get animals to communicate. We can almost force them to communicate what are sort of operant learning sorts of paradigms in which if they do something, we reward them. But the feature of human language that is really extraordinary is that children, any of you who've had children, will know that they talk whether you want them to or not, but most importantly, they don't speak for a specific reward. Whereas all of this chimpanzee signing work, as impressive as some of it is, is all about those animals getting rewards. And the rewards they want is food, not surprisingly. Okay, so if, if, if we are the only species that has this compositional language in which we can endlessly combine and recombine words, let's find out when it evolved. All right, I, I, I use things called phylogenetic trees a lot. 
in my work. This is what's known as a phylogenetic tree or a family tree of uh, a group of, of species known as the hominins. And the hominins are everything sort of north of the chimpanzees. So that tree shows you that sometime around six or seven million year, years ago, we shared a common ancestor with the chimpanzees. And then a group of us broke off and formed the lineage that would eventually lead to modern humans. And many of you have heard of one of the early species in that lineage was this Lucy, the Australopithecus species, a little short thing like this, kind of barrel chest that walked around like that. Um, Homo erectus was an upright ape that walked on the, the savannas of Africa. Homo erectus is really the first thing that deserves the, the name Homo in the sense of human, in that it, gone was the barrel chest and the really long arms, but if you bumped into this thing at night in the dark, you might think it was another human. That's how human-like they were. And then there's these things, the Neanderthals, which many of you have heard of, they're sister species to us. And very recently, this species that is very closely related to the Neanderthals, known as the Denisovans. Now, why do I put all these up here? Well, I, I put them up because not a single one of them has language, as far as we can guess, except us. And so, what that means is that language evolved somewhere along the lineage after we split off from the Neanderthals and leading to us. And the criteria that we use to decide whether a species has language, we obviously can't go back and find written work from Australopithecine or Homo erectus and so on, but we can look at their toolkits, the artifacts they leave behind. And what we see in these species is none of the complexity and the sophistication that we're so accustomed to and take so for granted with humans. Very, very simple toolkit that those species had. By the time we get to Neanderthals, it's a little bit more sophisticated, but as I'll go over tonight a few times, I don't think the Neanderthals had language, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some genetic reasons for that. Okay, so it seems like then language arose with the origin of our species, which is probably about 200,000 years ago. Now, very, very recently, some people have, have suggested that maybe we evolved more like 300,000 years ago. I think that's probably wrong. I think these species that they're finding that are um, 300,000 years old, or what we would call pre-modern humans. There are ancestors, our direct ancestors along that branch, but they weren't the modern humans that, that we think of as ourselves. So, like I say, there's some disagreement. Some people think that language evolved um, in the common ancestor to us and the Neanderthals. And part of the reason people think this is that Neanderthals seem to be fairly sophisticated. We interbred with them, so it seems. Um, but let me give you a good explanation for why I don't think they had language. A lot of people disagree with me on this, but I think it's just correct that Neanderthals didn't. We'll see why. <laughs> okay. Well, what does 200,000 years ago mean? This is for the sort of younger people in the audience. Um, 700 years ago was the Battle of Bannock Burn, and I'm sure I don't put quite the right accent on that when I say it. The Romans were about 2,000 years ago. The ancient Egyptians and Stonehenge, more like 5,000 years ago. The first human village is about only 10,000 years old. I said we arose 200,000 years ago, and we lived as hunter-gatherers exclusively until about 10,000 years ago when the first village was created. And then 20 times further back in time than that, was probably the origin of language when we were all hunter-gatherers about 200,000 years ago.
Big Ideas today is the first of the 2019 Glasgow Gifford Lecture Series, presented by Professor Mark Pagel on the evolution of language. Well, language, why us and only us? Why, if I'm arguing we're the only species with language, why us? And more, more importantly, maybe, why only us? Why not any other species? Let's have a look at four pieces of evidence, and not a single one is conclusive. No one's ever really going to know why we have language and only we have language, but we're going to try to explore some of those ideas a little bit more and give a sense of it. Well, one is that we can look to the extraordinarily rapid expansion of the human brain over the last two million years or so. You can see that running up through our ancestors, these things that would trace back down to our, our common ancestor with chimpanzees, there wasn't much change in brain size, but sometime around two million years ago, brain size just took off. It absolutely skyrocketed. It is an extraordinarily rapid increase in size. And so whereas you could say these, these chimpanzee-like things were really just a jaw with a little tiny head on top, humans are absolutely the reverse. We're an enormous protruding brain with a small jaw. That's the difference between us. So we went from a brain about 300 grams or so to a brain about this size, like a large cauliflower, about 1,300 grams or so. Okay, and when the human genome was first published in 2001, the molecular biologists had a look at the sequence of that genome and they found a gene in there called HAR1, which turned out to be the most rapidly evolving sequence in the human genome. And HAR1 is a brain gene. It's all about enlargement of the brain. So for some reason, we've been going through this extraordinarily rapid increase in brain size. And, and if you look at the, at the letters here, these are the sequences of DNA. These are called the bases, the, the little chemicals that are the sequences of DNA. If you look at ones that are in color, not black, there are differences between us and all of these other animals. And if you look at all of the other animals, there are very, very, very few differences. But between us and the chimpanzees, about five, six million years or so, back to them, there's already, I think, 18 differences it is. All right, so very, very rapid evolutionary change acting directly on the brain, rapidly uh, increasing the size of the brain. And our brains are still changing. This gene here, microcephalin, is still evolving. It's still sweeping through human populations. Here's a, a, a gene that was discovered really rather recently that seems to be directly involved in cortical expansion. So something dramatic is going on with our brains. And one of the things you need to understand when you're studying evolution is that things don't just happen because it would be fun to make a bigger brain. Those brains have to pay their way. Brains are extraordinarily costly organs to maintain. They're about 1,500 grams. That's a tiny percentage of our body weight, but, so 1.5 kilograms, Many of you will weigh something like 40, 50, 60, 70 kilograms, but the brain alone at rest accounts for 20% of our basal metabolism. So extraordinarily costly organs to maintain. And one of the reasons why other animals have such small brains compared to us is they can't afford to feed them. So we've somehow figured out a way to feed our brains. I said to you that there was a, a, a gene that was gonna tell us why the Neanderthals didn't have language, and we'll get onto that in just a second. But here's the closest thing to a genetic smoking gun for trying to understand 
human language. FOXP2 is a gene that creates a product in the human brain that changes the way a lot of other genes do their business in the brain. All mammals have it. All mammals have it, and I think even all birds have FOXP2. And it's extraordinarily conserved. Most animals have exactly the same genetic sequence of FOXP2. Now, this gene was discovered in 2002, and what was extraordinary about it was the realization that even though all the other animals had more or less the same copy, there were two differences between our version of it and the chimpanzee version of it. The reason it's thought of as a brain gene is that it, it, when we have mutations in the FOXP2 gene, people lose the ability to have the fine motor control of their, of their mouths to produce words, and they also suffer real linguistic deficits, deficits of grammar, inability to make complex sentences. So it seems to be a gene that's really directly involved in language. Now, a little bit embarrassing for me was that when the FOXP2 gene was sequenced in the Neanderthal genome, the Neanderthal genome became available, I think, right around 2008 or so, it was found that humans and Neanderthals had identical sequence of the FOXP2 gene. So this is why a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon and said, ah, Neanderthals spoke. But I don't think they did. And the reason is that when we look at Neanderthal social structure, and when we look at their what's called material toolkit, we don't see any of the sophistication that we see in humans. And I'll get on to this in more detail in a moment, but they just seem to be very different to us in their sophistication socially and culturally and in their, in their, in their sort of toolkit that they can produce. And have a look at their brains. Their brains are completely different to ours. Very, very different brains, where we've got this tall forehead that houses this huge cortex, neocortex. The, the Neanderthals have this sloping back brain. Okay, so a little bit of an embarrassment to me, but I held my ground. I had people come up to me at conferences, grab me by the lapels and say, how could you possibly say that Neanderthals don't have language? And here's why I was vindicated, because a few years ago, some workers found that there was a recent evolutionary change that affects what's called a regulatory element in the human FOXP2 gene. We use our FOXP2 gene differently from the way Neanderthals use theirs. So the FOXP2 gene affects at least 61 other genes that it upregulates. It makes them fire more. They make more of their product. And it reduces the products from at least another 50 in our brains. And we regulate our FOXP2. That is, we express our FOXP2 differently from the way the Neanderthals do. Okay, so I don't think the Neanderthals spoke, and we'll, we'll see some more evidence for this in a moment. All right, so it's looking like language arose something like 200,000 years ago, and if you ever get a chance to read E.H. Gombrich to your children, he has a lovely quote about humans and Neanderthals, and he says, now if all of our thinking goes on behind our foreheads, and these people didn't have any foreheads, he's talking about the Neanderthals, and perhaps they didn't think as much as we do. Or at any rate, thinking may have been hard for them. Okay, this is probably exactly the case. I have a feeling that being a Neanderthal was a rather plodding and literal existence, not the richly symbolic existence that we lead. And let's have a look at some evidence for that. Let's have a look at human symbolic thinking. So I've said we've had language since at least 200,000 years ago, 
by 40,000 years ago, look at the extraordinary sculpture and art and musical instruments that we were making. So in the sculpture, this is the, the famous Venus figurines. They're about this big. You could hold them in your hand, the Venus figurines. Many people think they're a sort of sexually exaggerated female form. Quite extraordinarily, the Lion Man of Holenstein. This is a combination of a lion and a human form. So this is symbolic thinking at its richest. We're all familiar with the cave art. You can see it in the south of France, at least 33 to 35,000 years old, extraordinary cave art. And perhaps you didn't realize that by 40,000 years ago, we had musical instruments and they were playable. Now, for all I know, these, these capabilities went back even further, but of course these things decay, don't they? Now, by comparison, you see none of this in the Neanderthals, absolutely none. There is no evidence of sculpture, no evidence of art, and certainly no evidence of musical instruments. And I think that when modern humans walked into Western Europe around 40, 45,000 years ago, the Neanderthals were already there. I'll bet they came walking in gaily dressed, playing musical instruments. They probably had alcohol, they had art displays, and the Neanderthals would have been sitting there around a campfire, just cold and wet, leading their sort of literal e existence. So it would have been a very, very dark time, I think, for the Neanderthal. Okay, there was a paper last year, 2018, that claimed that there, this was the first and only evidence uh, of Neanderthal art. And yet this is highly controversial, and I, I, I ask you to look at it after having seen the beautiful stuff I just showed you to see that if this is Neanderthal art, it really is just doodling. It could have been happening almost by accident. It isn't the highly symbolic forms that humans produce. And this is highly controversial, and, and, and most of the, the paleontological world and archaeological world doesn't agree with this. Okay, let's look at the final thing about humans that perhaps is why we have language and only we have language. Oh, look, that little baby is doing something that only humans can do. Now, I mentioned a lot of you are sitting there thinking, no, my dog can do this. They can't. <laughs> Neither can chimpanzees. What that baby is doing is demonstrating theory of mind. By pointing, that baby at age whatever that is, 18 months, two years, already realizes that the contents of its mind are different from the contents of your mind. Otherwise, it wouldn't have to point the thing out, would it? This is an extraordinary thing that only humans do. There is some suggestive evidence in some bird species that they might change the way they cache their food in the ground if they think another bird is watching, but it is really just suggestive. But this, this feature of the human consciousness theory of mind, we know that we can have thoughts about our mind relative to others' minds. And this theory of mind, as soon as this baby realizes that it can make a noise, let's call it language, it can make a noise and objects will, will as if by magic, get picked up and move across a room and maybe end up in its mouth, think of the realization that gives you. So having a theory of mind almost compels us to speak. As soon as you've got a theory of mind, you want to talk to others, you want to manipulate them. You want to share with them. You want to cooperate with them. So having a theory of mind is 
what appears to be unique among humans and is probably one of the most powerful reasons that we have language and no other species has. Now, I often tell audiences, and it's a hard thing to understand, but we can sum this up by saying that the other animals don't have language because they don't have anything to talk about. And people reject that and say, well, if I gave language to a chimpanzee, they'd have lots to talk about. They wouldn't because they don't even have a theory of mind. So, for example, if you, I'll come back and pick on your dogs for a moment, you know that if you go like that and point at something, your dog won't go like, oh, what's over there like that? It'll come up to the end of your nose, the end of your finger and smell it, right? Same thing with chimpanzees. You never see chimpanzees getting together in a troop of chimpanzees and say, hey, guys, look up there. They don't have that thought. Their, their thinking is just that. They're thinking, but they're not having the thought that. And so one of the reasons we have language is that we're probably one of the only species that has something to talk about because having theory of mind means that we instantly have this idea that we might want to compel others in some way. So theory of mind almost makes language inevitable. Okay, there's our four reasons. Now, let's look now at having this capacity, what we have done with it, because it, we've turned around and we've actually forced language to adapt to us, this very, very powerful thing we have. And Darwin was, was, was sort of aware of this way back when, in The Descent of Man in 1871, where he said the survival or preservation of certain favored words in the struggle for existence is natural selection. And we'll see that he's right, that, that we actually exert a form of natural selection, but in this case on a cultural object, a word, something that gets transmitted not genetically from parents to offspring, but from mouth to mouth, from mind to mind. And there's, there's a couple of ways that we can demonstrate this, and, and they're, they're quite accessible, and I think you'll find them fun. Let's ask how many English words are there? Well, the Oxford English Dictionary says there's about 250,000 words, and most linguists would say there's about 50,000 of those words in use, and if you're really, really good, you might know quite a few of those, or at least be able to recognize them. But how many words are possible? Well, let's just do some simple arithmetic to figure out how many words are possible. Let's say that English conventionally has five vowels, A, E, I, O, and U, and 21 consonants. Let's just make this really, really simple assumption. So how many five-letter words are possible? And let's make the words to be just like the word there. So they go consonant, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel. Well, if there are 21 consonants, there are any of 21 consonants that could be the first letter. And there could be 21 more consonants that could be the second letter. And then for any of those, we could have any of the five vowels, and then any of the 21 consonants, and then any of the five vowels. And that gives us five-letter words, 231,000 five-letter words. But hold on, I haven't done my arithmetic completely, have I? Because that's just five-letter words that are exactly the same order as there, consonant, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel. I need to ask how many five-letter words are possible if this ordering of vowels and consonants can be any way you like. And the answer was five. Some of, somebody doing A-level maths in here should know the answer to this. The answer was five is there's, there's ten ways we can arrange these five things chosen two at a time or three at a time. So there's actually two million three hundred and five thousand 
five-letter words, two million of them. Let's go on to a word like letter, same thing, consonant, vowel, consonant, consonant, vowel, consonant. There's four million of those that are just like letter, but in this case, there's 15 times that many if we allow these things to take any order as possible. So there's about 75 million six-letter words. This is starting to look pretty paltry, isn't it? Okay, and how about four-letter words? I put them last because four-letter words we think of as the sort of dirty words. Turns out there's lots of four-letter words. Four, 46,000 um, with one vowel, 11,000 with two, and we can do the same sorts of combinatorics and see that there's more. What you should take away from this is that is that the system we have erected, and this is a gross simplification because we don't actually think of words as, be, as, being, as comprising a whole lot of letters. We think of it comprising sounds, and there's many, many more sounds than there are the 26 vowels and consonants. So this is a gross underestimate. What we realize is that the words that we use in everyday speech are an enormously rarefied subset of all possible words. So human language, we have selected an extraordinarily tiny subset of the words that work for us. And we'll see what some of their characteristics are in a moment. So we don't have words like bakagu, even though that's a perfectly good English word. We don't have that word. So the words we use are an extraordinarily tiny subset. So Darwin was right. Words have had to compete for survival in the environment of our minds. And let's have a look at what that environment might be like. Well, let's plot up, make another plot here. And this is a plot of the length of a word. And again, this is extraordinarily simplified because I'm just plotting the number of letters in the word, not the syllables, just the letters because it was so easy to do this. Here's the, number of, here's the length of a word. And here's how frequently it's used in everyday speech. So this is put on a scale of per million utterances. And the first thing you should see here is that if you want to be used a lot as a word, if you're a word that wants to get used a lot, you gotta be short. If you wanna be used more than around 4,000 times in every million utterances, you've gotta be around three or four letters. So these are the words like I, he, she, it, you, and so on. All of these words that we use over and over and over and over are very, very short. The number words we use over and over and over also very short, one, two, three. Now, what are these words here? If the words that are long are the ones we almost never use. So what are these words? Well, that one is you. We use you over and over and over, and you is effectively a single sound, isn't it? So calling it three letters really overstates the case. It's just a single sound. What's this word here? You're all dying to know. Any guesses as to what this word is? It's not very interesting. It's telecommunication. But the point I want to make about telecommunication is that this is a perfectly good English word. And we could substitute it for the number word. So rather than counting one, two, three, four, five, let's substitute it for two. So one, telecommunication, three, four, five. Why don't we use telecommunication for the number two? Perfectly good word. The reason is its length, obviously. So you can see natural selection in action in our use of words. The words we use a lot, we have forced to be really, really short. It gets better than this. 
We've also made them easy to pronounce. They have fewer what linguists call obstruents. Now, obstruent is a word I should have included in that list because you've never heard of this word. And it's aptly named because an obstruent is a sound that obstructs your airway. And that's hard to, to pronounce, words that, that have obstruction. So compare words like I, he, she, you, very poetic. They just roll off your tongues. There's no obstruction of your airway with words like table, mouth. I have to obstruct my airway a couple times, tongue. And if you take a look at the frequency of use of, of these words in Old English, English, German, and French, you see that the more we use a word, the fewer obstruents it has. All right, a case can be made that language has played a more important role in our species' recent circa 200,000 years evolution than have our genes. And this is a bold statement. Um, who, who said that? It was, it was actually me that said that, so I'm gonna have to justify this now. So once you've got language, you can make plans, you can cooperate, you can share, you can club together, you can record um, instructions for things. So Vice Principal mentioned that I had dated the Homeric Iliad. Um, and you have, you, many of you will have read bits of, maybe all of the Iliad and the Odyssey. That thing wasn't written down, well, it was later, but it wasn't in Homer's time. It was recited as poetry. So language is this powerful thing that we don't need writing for to carry huge amounts of information. And 200,000 years ago, when language evolved, we would have been using it for those purposes. Planning, saving instructions, passing on information. All right, so what has happened with language? Well, let's take a look at our species history. Now, this is a slide I particularly like, and what's being plotted here is the geographic range of a species in different points in, in time. And here's the geographic range. And what I want you to see here is that for almost all animals on Earth, bar ourselves, animals are forced to live in the regions of the Earth that their genes adapt them to. So most animals are confined to a relatively tiny space on Earth where their genes adapt them to. There are no primates in North America. All chimpanzees are found in a tiny part of West Africa. And there's no evidence that they ever ranged widely around the world. Their genes adapt them to a particular way of life. Even the Neanderthals, these things that we thought were meant to be so intelligent, or others do, and I've been trying to argue tonight, I didn't think they were, to try to understand when language evolved. Even they were confined to just Europe. They were adapted to Europe. They had been living in Europe for 300,000 years before we arrived. And they weren't able to do anything else but that. But then look what happened. We came along and we spread out around the entire world, a bit like a mushroom cloud. And I use that metaphor because we have had that sort of impact on the world, like a nuclear explosion. We really have been a juggernaut. Now, I taught you something about a half an hour ago, which is what happened about 200,000 years ago. What happened? Language evolved, didn't it? And you can see that as soon as we acquired language, around 200,000 years ago, and before that we were these pre-modern species, I think, 
we spread out around the world. We walked out of Africa and occupied the entire world. Uh, a, a lot of people believe now that humans evolved somewhere. Most people believe in East Africa, whether it's in, in this part of East Africa or down in South Africa, it's not really clear, but somewhere in East Africa. And by around 60,000 years ago, we walked out and started occupying all of these different places on Earth, coming across the, the, the Bering Land Bridge about 15 to 20,000 years ago. And then we literally sort of jogged all the way down to the tip of South America, getting here only a few thousand years after we had crossed over here. And then the final occupation of the world was the extraordinary movement of the Polynesians only around 6,000 years ago out into the vast Pacific where they occupied virtually every island in the, in the Pacific, only getting to New Zealand, believe it or not, about 1,000 years ago. Okay, and in doing so, they left behind about 7,000 different languages. And we'll have a look on the third lecture of, of why those languages exist. But for now, here's, a, here's evidence that as we went around the world, we, for the most part, weren't even able to talk to our neighbors. We left these 7,000 different languages around. And in fact, as we were moving around, we would have left many more languages. No, these are just the contemporary ones. Okay, so with language, we spread out around the world and rapidly, and, and that spreading out and occupying new habitats, new environments, required us to develop technology and skills and knowledge for those habitats. And it's created our ethnic diversity, that movement around the world. So today's tribal, cultural, and ethnic diversity owes everything to our migration out of Africa, beginning about 60,000 years ago, and these different kinds of people exist uh, in, in some ways because of the, the habitats they occupied, but also because of a peculiar human habit of creating tribal identities, which we'll talk about in a later lecture, and, and uh, many of these kind of ornaments and, and, and ways of, of, of dress and so on arose at those times. Okay, but what we want to talk about is, is, did language really have this extraordinary influence on us? Because language powered us around the world. No other species has been able to do that like us. The only other species that occupy the world do so for some slightly boring reasons. Things like the bacteria, things like the rats that have sort of, have, have sort of um, parasitized us. But we occupied these new habitats and became sort of different people as we, we went around the world. And in doing so, we had to respond. We had to adapt at the genetic level. So in a sense, language has sculpted us genetically. We sculpted it by making words serve our interests, but then language helped us move into these new parts of the world where we had to respond genetically. Here's a really good example of this. this is a, a Dinka nomadic pastoralist who lives in Sudan. And this is an Inuit who lives up in what we would call Alaska. And have a look. If you look at this guy, he lives in an extraordinarily hot environment. And everything about his body is designed to lose heat. Everything about his body is designed to lose heat. He's tall and rangy, really long arms, very, very tall. By comparison, this guy lives in one of the coldest places that humans ever occupy. And look at his body. He's short and squat. Everything about him is designed to retain 
body heat. Now, if we look at, here's just a good example, if we, if we look at the sort of pelvic breadth, what we see is that the, the East Africans are sort of slender hips compared to the Inuits, and the East Africans have got these long bones of the arm, just showing that, as if we needed to, the long arms. And, and these are genetic differences. These aren't just differences that arose because one of them woke up uh, an Inuit one day. If you were to take an Inuit baby and raise it as a Dinka, it would look like an Inuit. If you were to take a Dinka and raise it as an Inuit, it would look like a Dinka. These are genetic differences, and they arose because language carried us around the world, thrusting us into new environments where we had to genetically um, adapt to survive. All right, and a number of these genetic adaptations have been um, identified around the world as we moved around the world. Some of the best known are the high altitude adaptations. So for people, say, in Tibet, there's some people in the Ethiopian highlands and people in, in the Andes Mountains, you know, who live above 12, 13, 14,000 feet. And they've developed specific genetic adaptations to help them live in that really thin and rarefied air. And there's lots and lots of others of them. We don't need to go into them all, but there's adaptations for living in cold environments. These are genetic adaptations, not just putting on lots of clothes. Um, there's, there's adaptations uh, against disease. You'll all be familiar with sort of malaria adaptations. There's adaptations to drinking milk. I showed you this, this Dinka tribes um, guy, this nomadic pastoralist. They drink milk. We don't normally, as adults, digest milk, and so we've had to develop the ability to digest milk as adults, and really only those of us who can trace our ancestry back to dairying people have that ability to digest milk. It's, it's common in Europeans, it's rare in most places around the world. All right, so there's many, many, many of these genetic adaptations that arose simply because having language, we were able to move around the world as we did. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll begin to end by showing you a really extraordinary example of this um, and showing you how powerful these genetic adaptations are with a nice little example of nature versus nurture. Nature versus nurture at 14,000 feet, about 4,200 meters in Tibet. So this guy here is called Jashi, and he is um, a Tibetan man, and he's about 40-something, and he's a heavy smoker. So here's Joshi, 40-year-old Tibetan smoker. This chap here is 19 years old, and he's a fit Anglo-Saxon who has enjoyed all of the privileges of life. Sanitation, clothing, warm homes, lots to eat, so on and so forth, gyms to work out in. And this guy and Joshi went up this mountain and this fit 19-year-old could not keep up with this 40-year-old heavy smoker. The Tibetans have this genetic adaptation known as EPAS1 that allows them to survive efficiently in the thin, rarefied air uh, high up in Tibet. So there's a good example of the power of this genetic adaptation that was brought about by language in allowing us to occupy these regions. This guy here would just be altitude sickness all of the time in that area. Okay, like any good teacher, I'm gonna end there and summarize what have we learned tonight. 
Um, we've learned that human language is compositional. That's what distinguishes it from other forms of communication in animals. Language evolved about 200,000 years ago. Only humans have it. There was a rapid expansion of brain size. We have this FOXP2 gene, these very particular changes in the FOXP2 that seem to be implicated in language. We have symbolism like no other species has ever demonstrated. And we have a theory of mind, which I suggested to you was an extraordinary difference between our minds and the minds of all other things that really compels us in some way to speak. So vigorously do we use language that our words must compete in a struggle for existence in the environment of our minds. We have sculpted language, and then language has turned around and sculpted us by steering us into places around the world where we had to adapt at the genetic level. Okay, I'm going to end there and just say thank you very much. Professor Mark Pagel of Reading University with the first of his four lectures in the 2019 Glasgow Gifford Lecture Series. The lecture series was established by Adam Lord Gifford in the 19th century as a bequest to the universities of Glasgow, Edinburgh, St Andrews and Aberdeen to be delivered by preeminent thinkers in their fields. The first was delivered in 1888. You can find out more about the Glasgow Gifford Lecture Series and Professor Mark Pagel's 2019 lectures at the Big Ideas webpage. The second lecture in the series tackles the evolution of creativity. And the sobering news is you're not as clever as you think. That's in a week's time on Big Ideas. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.